for joining us today. Uh, this is a wonderful event. We're doing a wellness webinar. Um, I am Elaine Pauly with MagnaWave. I'm the uh, president of MagnaWave. Joining me today is the wonderful Dr. Myers. Oh, not you, Dad. I went to Dr. Myers. <laughs> um, Dr. Myers, she's our medical director. And then also my 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 favorite person, Pat Zemer, my father. He is the CEO and founder of MagnaWave. And we are joining you to talk a little bit about what's going on in the world. I think we're all flooded with COVID-19 stuff. And I think a lot of people are worried about where they're getting their information. So we feel it's important for Amanda to share her story with us and how it's going with her. So uh, Dr. Myers, let's talk a bit, a little bit, you know, last time we talked, we, um, we touched on the unknown and uh, what was happening and how quickly things were happening. So uh, where are you right now? Where are you working and how is it going? I am back in Tampa, Florida. I, in between the last time that I talked with you guys, I've been in Dayton, Ohio, and back in Texas, actually, and then back here in Florida. Um, I think everywhere is seeing the same sort of process. Everyone is worried. There is rapid spread, of course, um, and the unknown of, of maybe people who don't look sick but are sick. And so there's a, a shedding process that's happening from an exposure perspective. Yeah. Uh, everywhere I go, uh, we have stay home, shelter in place orders, depending on your state, what they're called. Um, of course, you know, the, the total conversation right now is how, how can we flatten our curve? How can we minimize the numbers of people who are getting sick acutely right now? Can we stretch out that timeline so people are getting sick uh, in a sort of less bolus sort of volume so that our hospital systems can keep up with it. Um, every hospital that I work with is doing a fantastic job trying to put protocols in place. It's sort of a rapid moving environment. As we learn things, of course, we're adjusting them. So I feel like weekly we're doing a new process, but the processes are improving uh, just from a safety of staff and safety of patient uh, and safety of, you know, from the emergency department's perspective, which is where I work. Uh, how do we keep people who don't have COVID right now away from people who potentially do have um, the virus. And so we're, we're trying to mitigate just volume of contact for, for people across the board. So it's been challenging because we just don't know everything that we would like to about this virus yet. Do you feel like you've come a little bit more uh, like along the way? Do you feel like you've learned more uh, over the last week and a half? I, I think we have. I mean, I, I think as we learn more about, you know, who who might be the person who will have a harder time with the viral process, you know, it's a little bit like flu. We know there are categories, pockets of people that are going to struggle more if they have flu exposure mm -hmm. uh, than other people who don't. Um, and so, we, you know, we're sort of getting the same feel with the COVID-19 virus. We're finding it's not striking children as hard. Um, it's they can get sick. They do get sick. It's just not putting them in intensive care units and we're not seeing the mortality rates with them. Uh, whereas people who have other chronic medical problems like high blood pressure, cardiovascular problems, diabetes, uh, those types of things, those individuals really will struggle with this. And they are commonly the people that end up requiring hospital care, uh, requiring intensive care, sometimes ventilator assisted breathing uh, help. And so as we're, as we learn more, we can target kind of where do we put our resources, right? So yeah. we've had a big conversation about New York City because they are potentially the, the place where we're having the highest volume of, of cases and the highest number of individuals who are requiring ICU level care. Uh, there are a couple other cities in the nation that are struggling with that now that are, are using strategies that New York City developed in order to mitigate uh, their volume of, of need. And so, yes, we're learning. Where do we put our resources? Where do we you know, put the, the volume of staff, how do we divert things into different arenas in order to use them more effectively? So um, I just want to remind everybody to put, if you have questions for Dr. Myers or um, Pat Zemer or myself, you can put them in the box. You could actually give live comments. We will read those. This is your time to talk to a doctor who's really working on the front lines of what's going on. Um, yeah. Do you have any questions for Dr. Myers that you would like to ask off the bat? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. I mean, there's a lot of talk about opening back up. How do you feel about that? I mean, you know, when they talk about doing it in waves and and uh, uh, I mean, I've had I've talked to people, for example, you know, we're big soccer fans and we 
and we got seats at the soccer stadium. And I was talking to one of the team owners the other day, and he said, I think what I think is going to happen is going to be July, maybe, before we play a game. Then they're going to tell you and I to stay home and let the people that are 35 and younger go, and you can watch on TV. And yeah, there's a lane. And, and uh, <laughs> I get your seats for soccer? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, how do you feel about that? What do you, what do you see happening there? I, you know, it's a, it's a plus minus, it's a risk, right? So we know that if we isolate, we can potentially not spread this virus as aggressively and as rapidly. Uh, and so there, there are some of us who would say that's the best way and we need to stay isolated, but we also, it's, there's the reality of, you know, our world and our life and, you know, our economy is a big factor. So how do we mitigate the risk of getting sick into the, you know, possibility of opening things back up. And I feel like from the medical arena, part of what will help us is, you know, we've developed a test right now that we use on the front line to say, do you have COVID-19 or not? It's a PCR test classically. It's looking for the, the RNA, which is kind of like our DNA. That's this virus has an RNA strand. So the, the testing is looking for, is the virus present or not present? Are you sick or not sick? What we're moving into now is, are you, have you been exposed? Are you now healthy again? And do you have antibodies to protect you? So we're looking more at an antibody test for, are you well uh, and are you protected? And I feel like if we can get better data about that, then we would all feel a, a bigger sigh of relief potentially for opening again. You know, because if I know that you have been exposed and you have recovered and you are now protected, then that means get out there and do it, um, you know, and, and be cautious. But we know that you maybe have something that is in your system to help you not hopefully become sick again. But that's the big question because we don't know that answer yet. How long do these antibodies last? How broad are they as this virus changes and morphs within the population? You know, will your antibody exposure protect you if you fly to California and that RNA was slightly different than the one in your hometown? Will your antibody still keep you from getting sick if you saw someone who was sick? That type of thing. So, you know, we, we've got a lot to learn still. So there's there's benefits in opening uh, and there's risk in opening. And I feel like they're going to toe in the water. They're going to try to see if we open up things. Do we see a, a, a peak in exposure and in, in illnesses or do we stay similar to where we are now? Um, and so I feel like if they find a spike, they're going to shut it back down. Yeah. So it's a risk, but it, it's probably one that, you know, a lot of states are willing to take at this point. So, you know, I, when you're talking about that, it's kind of like it. I don't want to say it's like the flu because it's not like the flu because it's so unknown. I mean, there's so much things that can go wrong. But I've had, you know, especially when I was younger and I was in my 20s and I had two kids and a full time job. I got the flu of like the A and the B and the C like within one year. And it was horrible. And my immune system was down and I was working nights at a television station as a television producer. I had two young kids and exhaustion and I wasn't doing really anything to take care of myself. So um, like if you are like my dad and, you know, you're in you're older than 35. I won't give your exact age, dad. Um, or you're, you know, and you, or you have a, you know, some type of a medical issue, what are you recommending that people do? And how would you recommend if they, if they should use MagnaWave and how they should use it? I mean, I think your one good defense is a good offense, you know, still, I feel like we don't have a vaccine and we probably won't for another 18 months. That's very far in our future. This, the, the problem with this particular virus is that you know, right now we're coming into our spring and summer and most viruses die in heat. We anticipate this one will do the same, although we're not positive. Uh, so our season is going to sort of, thankfully, just because of the, the timing of the year, potentially shorten. Um, the problem is going to be that Central South America, their winter is beginning. And so, and we're so travel connected now that we, there's a good chance that we will see this again in our winter in 2020. So we will not have a vaccine realistically at that timeline. So we're looking at vaccines in 2021 as the, the reality. So the, the key now is to keep yourself as healthy as you can because there are no treatments to help you on any other level to protect you from this virus or to get rid of it while you have a current illness with that. We have several things that we're looking and studying at currently. None of them have been panning out to give us really great, you know, this fixes the problem type answers. 
Um, some of them have mitigated symptoms, but not on a level that have, have made us say we're going to give it to everyone. So yeah. they're still studying those things clearly. So everything that you can do to keep yourself healthy is your best choice. So in, in my opinion, things like pulsed electromagnetic fields will help your body do that. Um, it's an easy thing to do. Uh, there's no wrong way to do it. A magnetic field is not dangerous to your body at all. But what it will do is reset your cell structure up to be healthy and to function. And we all know that healthy cells will keep you healthier. So cells that are sick and not doing well tend to stay stagnant. And then when you are encountering something that could overwhelm you like this virus, it, you're going to struggle with it completely. Um, but if you can fortify your system and you can help keep those cells working properly uh, with pulse electromagnetic fields, then your body's going to tolerate something that someone else's might not. Okay, so I like that. So um, what about um, what, vi what like vitamins? We've been through this before, but I think there's more people on here. Um, where that what should people be taking um, and should they take it before they they use the magnetic PMF or should they take it after? Um, you know, the, the vitamin profiles we recommend are really the ones that help your immune system. Uh, so vitamin uh, C is a very good one. Uh, you need a good B complex, specifically B6. Uh, we recommend micro uh, vitamins like zinc, uh, selenium. Those are good just resource for the body to use. Um, the, the big one right now, I feel like vitamin E is helpful because it helps repair injured cells. But the big one right now I feel like that's important is vitamin D3. Uh, it does change some of the lung tissue, which is where this virus is sort of happy to enter your body, the most happy to get inside you. It comes through your lung tissue. Uh, so nose sort of respiratory tract down into the lungs themselves. Uh, and D3 can shift the way that the virus can enter your body. So maybe one of the more important ones for right now, not one of the common ones that we recommend um, from just a, a viral protective sort of perspective. So, but D3 certainly at this point is a, is a good player. Um, what kind of dosage doctor of, of the D3? So the, the D3, we recommend what we're finding is that 10,000 units a day. So the international units I use uh, per day is what we would recommend. And we've studied it up to 60,000 units a day on a daily basis over a six month period of time and, and, and not seeing any type of side effect profile from that. So, that it's a higher dose than what probably, you know, on an average has been recommended. Um, but yeah. in this particular setting, probably the best choice. So what about but, C and vitamin E? Sorry to interrupt you. Nope, that's okay. Uh, vitamin E, we would say the 400 uh, units a day with. Uh, and then vitamin C, I would say one gram or what would we say a, a thousand milligrams. Um, and then in the, if you have a good multivitamin, that, those are always a good choice. And they tend to have the B-complex and the zinc and selenium in them. So you don't need to necessarily, you know, take 12 pills a day. You can, you can combine some of those. Um, but clearly your vitamin C will be a greater dose than what's in a multivitamin, the vitamin D uh, and vitamin E likely as well. So. Um, and would you treat, would you or use that, like have a wellness session before, like with Magnawave PMF, or would you recommend doing it after or does it matter? don't know that it matters as much. There's some evidence that will tell you that if you create a magnetic field and then you take a product, that product will be uh, better absorbed. And again, we're just looking at a, a healthier system, right? So if a system is not actively engaging well, um, then it, it will not absorb as rapidly or as completely as a system that is fine-tuned and functioning. So, you know, for those of uh, individuals who are actually taking you know, medications for blood pressure or for diabetes and those types of things, you know, you, you do need to be a little cautious about your timing because you can increase the uptake of the medicine or the actual bioactivity of the medicine maybe would be the better way to say it. Okay. Chad, do you have anything to add to that? Are you treating yourself right now or how are you do? How are you going about that? Every day. I know I'm treating myself every day. Um, for at least half an hour or more. Of course, I also treat myself at night with a with a with, with the B two with the B two. But I, I'm I'm actively I'm actively uh, treating my chest and lungs. Yeah. Um, just to have good flow there, if you will, or, and that type of uh, that type of thing. And and uh, but yes, I'm I'm treating myself. So is your mom daily. Yeah. Good. I recommend that everybody does that. Um, I mean, I feel like. 
um, we had the flu come through my house and I was scared and I was like, oh my gosh, I, you know, this was two or three weeks ago. And I talked to you about it, Dr. Myers. I was worried. Mm -hmm. And I took my daughter. She ended up having the flu. Um, and we started, I started putting her on my lap just because she was kind of breathing heavy and we didn't have any tests, you know, so for COVID, but she had the flu and nobody in the house, nobody else really got it. I had one day where I was tired and that's probably because I was in her face for every night while she cried, but I really feel like it made the difference. Like she was, we didn't give her the Tamiflu. It was three days. You know, I, I talked to you and I said, should I give her the Tamiflu? And there's risks there with right. the team of flu and a toddler. So I decided to opt against it, just see what happened. And I treated her by her laying on me. And I, she loves it. It's the only time you could get her to sit sit still now. And we just relaxed together. And I re, and within three days, she her fever was gone. Um, and she was with no medication. So um, and the rest of my family, I forced to treat it, used to force them. And now they love it. They'll sit down and we'll all watch TV and take turns. Um, and I feel like it. You know, in my mind, it was the difference between us all getting sick because I'm doing these like maintenance things to stay well. I think that that's, like you said, part of the um, whole thing. Like uh, we had a question from Tony about herd immunity. Um, would that apply to a virus like this? You kind of touched on it earlier, but it, I mean, when you don't know what's happening, how does that work? I mean, herd, herd immunity is certainly a, a, a thing. Uh, we've been sort of proving it generically because we've seen people vaccinating their children less in the last decade in the pediatric arena. Uh, but we also know that it fails. We've had the huge measles outbreak in the last two years running. Actually, mm -hmm. we never saw measles before, but now we do because not enough people are immunizing. So, uh, you know, yes, you can depend on others to be healthy. Uh, and if everybody is healthy, then everyone stays healthy and that's herd immunity. Um, so there's that possibility the, you know, again, this is just a new virus. We're not sure how our antibodies are going to be formed. We don't know how broad they're going to be. We don't know how protective they will be. And we don't know how long they will last. And that's the, that's the scary part about her immunity right now is we just can't predict. If I only keep antibodies six weeks, uh, but this, you know, viral process is lasting six months, then that's, no, I'm no longer immune, you know. Right. I, I'm no longer going to be able to protect anybody else because I've already had the virus. So the big question on the table right now is, do we get the antibodies? How good are they? How long do we keep them? Um, you know, and, and do, can they protect me from a second round of this illness? You know, I don't, that's the, that's the issue because this virus is changing, right? So just like the flu, we see that the, the surface of this virus changes the protein structure on the surface. And so it becomes less recognizable over time. So, you know, that, that's kind of how the flu operates as well as it's in the population and morphs as it is moving between people or pockets of people or so forth, because we're all a little different, you know, it becomes a new entity. And so we just don't know how good our antibodies will be against this. Now, if you get the antibodies, let's say you got sick and you got better. So you have the antibodies, you're out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, if you do antibodies last longer if you take care of yourself and you're and you're you know taking this vitamin C and let's say you change your lifestyle you you got sick and you were drinking a lot and you weren't working out or whatever you were just not as well and then if you get out and you change your lifestyle is there a possibility that it'll make the antibodies last longer or keep you healthier longer? Um, I don't know that I don't know that's a good question. I've not read any research about that to know yeah. if, if, if that happens or not. So, but I mean, I would argue that if you take a sick body and you make it a healthy body, you will be better at resisting uh, or eliminating more rapidly anything that you're exposed to, whatever that may be. It's kind of like what you did with uh, cookie and treating people in your house and saying, we have a flu, the flu is highly contagious, the, to not have it spread within a home rapidly to everyone is impressive. But if everyone else stays healthy, you know, then the possibility of you not getting sick is real. So the healthier you are, the stronger your system is, you know, the less likely something will overwhelm you. You might get a little fever, you might get a little cough, you might get a little snot, but you you won't get into bed with pneumonia, right? Right. So it's just, you know, can you keep your system working well enough to operate in a way that doesn't allow overwhelm? That's mm -hmm. really the question. So, and, and whether you have an antibody to help, because the, the antibody, it's like a, it's like a file. It's like, 
something that you you have you've written down that's a process for something right and you put it in your computer and you don't do that process for six or eight months and so you have to go man i wrote all that down i'm going to go get that thing out and i'm going to read it again and then i'm going to know what to do with this you know time that i have to do it this time and then because you've done it once before you go oh that's right and when we did that we had this problem and that problem so let's modify it let's do it this way so you add that information into that page and then you don't do it for six months, but then you get it out again. And so like the third and the fourth time, you've got a cleaner process, a faster process, you know, something that allows you to move from point A to point B in a faster, more efficient way that that is sort of the way that our immune structure works, right? So the repeat exposure to these processes allows us to recognize them faster and defend ourselves against them faster in a more efficient way so we get less and less sick each time we see this problem, right? Yeah. And, the, the problem with COVID-19 is it's completely new. No one has seen it before. So we're all learning for the first time what's going to happen, right? Yeah. I, I was reading an article this afternoon, uh, knowing that we were going to be together visiting from the World Health Organization. Of course, I know they're up and down right now with in favor or not in favor, but um, they were talking about in the article about the the antibody situation and the herd immunity and and they're not in in their studies or what they've been able to find is they're not being able to put a real thumb and i think it could right. be because the the virus can change from area to area as you right. described from kentucky to what it is in california and so they're questioning the actual uh, viability of the antibodies really doing a good job at this point right and i think that's that's the sort of the, you know, the, the first front push on this was let's just get a test where we know we have it or we don't know, you know, that, that you either are positive for COVID-19 or you're not positive for COVID-19, so that we know what to do with you next, not just for you, but for everyone around you, as well as for the healthcare providers that are taking care of you. And then now, really, we've got to move into antibody testing. That's the, the next big thing. Who has had it? Who still is protected? What are they protected against? How broad is the is the the antibody that you're creating? And then we've got to kind of serially test to know how long it's lasting because we don't know any of that realistically. And again, if, if I live in in you know the the East Coast and I travel to the West Coast, or I live in the Midwest and I travel to the South, is it the same virus? And and the answer is probably yes and no. Uh, we've seen two big splits in the virus of of the genetics of it. Um, and you know, the, the one is more viable. So it's a larger nut sort of percent of the virus that we're seeing. Uh, and that's the way that these things work. SARS one, the, the first SARS virus that we saw, uh, in 2004 gene coded in a way that made it less viable. It could not get into a cell, invade a person and become uh, an illness for them. And so it literally died out for that reason. Uh, what we're finding with COVID-19 is it's gone the opposite direction. It's actually coding in a way that makes it more viable, more uh, contagious between people on an easier level. So more like the flu in that sense. Uh, and that's a normal virus behavior, frankly. Uh, that's not special to this COVID-19. That's what we see commonly with viral infections. So th that's the big deal is do we open the population back up? Do we, do we stop socially isolating? Do we stop asking you to stay home? Do we let you back out into the movie theater and, and the restaurants and the things that keep our economy going? Um, but knowing that that exposure comes with a, a strong volume of risk. You know, I thought personally when all this developed and they started talking about, and there was a question asked, I want to weave into this. At the very beginning, I think what they probably, and this is just me personally, I felt that they should say to people my age, starts with a seven, ends with a one, that, that, uh, right away. <laughs> yeah, that that you stay inside, you quit going out. I don't want to do that uh, at all. And I was Debbie and I were talking about that this morning. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun for the next six months or a year that we would have to live that kind of seclusion. But I would do that gladly. And I'm sure and, and I would think that other people that are considered more vulnerable because of age or certainly people with pre-existing conditions, if they would just do that, that would make a big difference as well, because we're the ones that are that the people with pre-existing conditions and, and age vulnerable are certainly suffering more than others. Yeah, and, and, I, I think that's the truth. I think, you know, age and the individuals who have, you know, multiple medical issues, those are sort of the individuals that we're finding are the risk zones. And so I would argue if you're in that category, you should be very careful about 
re rejoining and regoing and removing uh, into the world as you once knew, you know, because I feel like this risk is not gone. Um, I feel like if we recongregate, we will probably see pops and spikes in different places uh, of volume of number of people who are sick. Um, and I would argue that the, the risk groups should be careful and cautious about their reentry into this, you know, sort of process. So, yeah, we have a question asking. There's been reports of people who are completely um, that, are, that have no serious issues um, and they have no prior medical conditions and are otherwise healthy and young and they get sick um, and, and mm -hmm. you know, are hospitalized or die. Like yeah. what they're asking, are these reports accurate? Does this happen? And what would cause this? Is there a way to know? Uh, it is accurate. We are seeing people in their 20s, in their 30s, in their 40s that are healthy people that have been overwhelmed and died from this virus. Um, they're certainly in our numbers. They're small amounts compared to the total amounts, but they do exist. Um, and they're probably arguably what scares everyone is because that's the outlier. That's the, we don't know who that is or who they're going to, you know, what we can't group that person into something that tells us they're the risk population. So that's the challenge um, is guessing that. And we just don't, again, know enough about this virus to be able to predict that. Um, so stop. Say hi. <laughs> Some people have had, uh, hi, Cookie. Hi. Hi, Boba. She said, hi, Boba. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, Dr. Amanda, to that, to that end, you know, and, and you're right. And I, I told Debbie, I came on a week ago, I ran to the store to pick up groceries at, at the, you know, at the curb and all that kind of stuff, wearing my mask and gloves and, and the whole routine. But I was amazed. I saw a young couple walking into the store with an infant, Cookie's age, and they were clearly in their 30s, no mask, no gloves, carrying the infant, going, both of them going into the store. And I just shook my head thinking, what are they doing? Yeah, infants are the worst because they touch everything. They lick everything. I mean, you you can't help them touch. They eat the bar at the. I mean, it's disgusting. Like they don't they don't take it seriously. But I, I would have to say, and, and Dr. Amanda, please help me here if, if to what I'm going to ask. Certainly, someone who appears healthy, uh, who gets out every day and doesn't have any problems, not taking blood pressure medicine, don't have any problems breathing. Da 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 da. da uh, that doesn't mean that their immune system is as strong as it could be. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't be taking these vitamins or shouldn't be using uh, PEMF MagnaWave to help their body be healthier. And I'm not trying to sell MagnaWave at that point. I'm just saying whatever is out there to make their body healthier, uh, people of whatever your health basis should be doing. Yeah, I mean, arguably, that's the truth. So, you know, you can be young and not healthy, you know, from that perspective. And, and arguably, the young are the commonly, you know, sleep deprived, stressed, lots of stuff going on, uh, lots of activity in, in life. And so, you know, you might appear fit, but not be immune strong, I guess, is the easiest way to say that. And so, I mean, arguably, yes, you should still be being very careful about water intake, about sleep, about de-stressing, you know, stress is one of the huge killers of our system uh, across the board. It just puts everything into a, a chemistry perspective that is it's wrong for function uh, and, and for just health and body flow. And so any, anything that you can do to get out of stress, that you can support immune structures with, that you can sleep better, um, you know, so that you're really repairing your systems. Uh, during the process of night sleep, uh, that's it's critical to do that right now, because we are seeing that, that you know the the 35 year old that is walking to the grocery store or to those essential places, uh, not not protecting you know with masks other population, which is part of the conversation I think that's going on now, you know they they may they may have the virus and be shedding the virus, not have the symptoms. We know those people exist. And so you can expose other people to that process, but you can also, you can also get sick from the virus yourself. And those are the people that we're seeing kind of shockingly that are healthy, young, no real problem. People end up in the intensive care unit and not survive the virus. Well, so, who's under stress today? You take the, the people that are having to work from home that are in their 40s, in their 30s, uh, that whole night, there you go. And the stress levels, are, they've been laid off. They're trying to, you know, they don't have a job uh, and they look great and they're healthy, but their stress level is incredible. 
Right. The depression that comes with it. I mean, I think that's what like I, my group of friends, um, we try to talk. We're 11 best friends since high school and we all have kids and we all work and we all realize the, the sadness that we're missing birthday parties and we're missing. We can't get out of our house. We can't do things. And I think that's what's been really good for my family with using the MagnaWave because we lay on it. I feel like it does. It is, you know, PMF has has been tested over and over and over again for depression. Um, and I think that that's something that we're not talking about enough. We're not talking about the physical feeling of stress in your back, the physical, and you can't just go to the gym. You can't go to your massage therapist. You can't go get, you know, the Reiki that you usually get or whatever, the uh, acupuncture, all of those things that you would usually do. You can run around your neighborhood. Like that's about it. And what I found is if I, we go outside, we get some time outside and then I sit them, I sit them down and I started doing these regular magnetic treatments when cookie got sick I, I used to only do them when when the kids felt you know they they fell down on a soccer game or whatever they were fine i treated joe and i regularly um and i realized that i think it's helping with the depression and the calming down because they're stuck in the house you know um and it's it's stressful i, I just don't think anybody i think that toll is just is is bad it's not as bad as getting COVID 19 but it's it's bad on your your mental psyche Absolutely. We have a question. What makes the high blood pressure people at risk? And does it matter what type of blood pressure meds they're on? So there's been a big conversation about blood pressure meds. Yes, because part of the way that our blood pressure is regulated, uh, it's a complex between your heart and your kidneys, actually. Uh, and so part of our blood pressure medicines articulate that zone of how much volume you have in your blood flow pattern, right? So um, in the vessels themselves, part of what will create pressure is just volume of fluid. And so some of our blood pressure meds help us not hold on to as much fluid. Um, those, those kinds of blood pressure meds also, there's a, so it makes me a little challenging. Let's see. The part of the process of knowing how much of the volume that you need in your system is actually in the lung. The lung has a tissue receptor because the lung and the heart work together, right? To bring blood and oxygen next to each other so that we can oxygenate the blood and then have it pumped through the rest of the body. So in the lung tissue itself, there are receptors that help articulate fluid volume. It's one of the sensor areas, I guess is the easiest way to say that. Um, and so, the virus is coming into the lung tissue through sort of the back door of one of these receptors that the blood pressure medicines are using. And so there's concern oh. that if you're taking the blood pressure medicine, then are you actually allowing the virus to enter the cell more easily? Oh. So there's studies going on right now to try to figure that out. Uh, and so far we have not seen that be the case. So in part, we're looking at how many receptors do you have and then how open are those receptors working and the blood pressure medicines can change two things a how many how many receptors do you have and there's some upcycling of them so there's some people will produce more receptors on the blood pressure medicines uh, some people will downregulate the receptors so they'll actually they will change the number of functioning ones so there's how many are present, how many are functioning, and how many are allowing the virus to come through potentially more easily. And that's the big research question right now. So is the medicine good if it down-regulates or it changes the vir viral entry pattern? Or is it bad because it's up-regulating, causing more of these receptors to occur and opening the channel so the virus is entering the cell itself? So right now we're not finding that the blood pressure medicine is creating risk. Uh, and if the argument is that you should stay on the blood pressure medicine if that's what effectively manages your blood pressure for you uh, based on what kind of blood pressure problems you, you have. So we're not seeing recommendations to come off the blood pressure medicines at this point in the game. Uh, we are not seeing recommendations though to put people on them uh, to try to prevent illness. So right oh. now it's, it's status quo. Keep your med, keep it at the, the dose that you're supposed to. Uh, we're not finding that being a problem. So I guess the bottom line with that is because you're on blood pressure medicine or medication, you are certainly vulnerable. 
And that, that all that stuff is, going is on, you are just more vulnerable, not because right. you have blood pressure, just because all this stuff's going on in your lungs makes Correct. you more vulnerable. Correct. And, and classically, you know, blood pressures that are higher come with age, right? So part of this is, are you just in a zone of age where this is one of the sort of life things that happen, right? And so now we're managing that as you're aging. So, you know, but we know that the older age populations are at a higher risk. So is it a combination of those things? Probably, you know, again, we're still sort of learning and, and trying to figure it out. I think there's a lot of young people that have blood pressure issues that don't know it. I th I've noticed that recently. Like, well, I have friends that are 29 and friends that are 35. And in between that range, I've, more and more of them are like this, this the issues that they've been suffering with headaches or uh, mood swings. And they go in and they finally realize, oh, it was my blood pressure. And I didn't realize all this time these issues have been, you know, the problem. So I think there's a lot of people walking around, like we said earlier, dad, that are 35 years old walking into a grocery store with a kid, with a baby, not realizing that they may have one of those issues. Their headaches may just, that might be what's causing it. Sure. Um, and that's, I think that's kind of, you know, a lot of people aren't going to the doctor like they should be going to the doctor um, and they're not taking their vitamins and well, they're not magnawaving as much as they should. So uh, that's just my personal opinion. No, um, that's, that's great. John asked the question. So this one was created to be better and more efficient. John's in Europe. Uh, John, is he talking about the virus? Yeah, is he talking about the virus being created to be better and more? I don't know. That's why, yeah. Yeah, so John, if you clarify that, I'd appreciate it. We can uh, uh, go on with that, certainly. Thank you, Robbie Rice, for saying interesting point, Elaine. Whoop, whoop. Okay, uh, Don Weifels asks, how effective are cloth masks? So cloth masks are, that's the big debate, right? Do we need masks or not? And that it's, we've not been aggressive trying to put masks on everyone immediately. Uh, I think that they do that a lot of their time anyway because of pollution. So mask wearage in China was not unusual. Uh, and to implement it during this process for them was one of the first things they did and made it mandatory. The United States has not done that yet. Most of, most of the countries have not done that yet. The, the mask is there as a cloth mask in order to help you not expose someone else to what you have. So it is going to help change how much, if I am shedding the virus, if I cough or I sneeze, or as I'm speaking, I have droplet exposure coming out. It's there to change how far that droplet will go, right? So if I sneeze in a grocery store and you're eight feet away from me, I'm going to actually hit you with some of whatever came out of my nose. It's a big diameter yes if i sneeze and no one is there then it's just going to go all over whatever product is in front of me that the next person is going to come and touch so that's the problem right so mask wearage at this point in the game is predominantly to help not spread what you have to someone else now if you're wearing an, an, an n95 mask those masks are fit tested to your face uh, it, they create a seal around your nose and your cheek uh, and then underneath, so nose bridge down, around, and then under the chin area. Uh, and they create a seal where you do not breathe in viral particles or any other kinds of particles, realistically. In fact, I think there's a, an ad on TV right now that shows the faces of workers it's with like red lines around their face. That's from the mask that they wear. These are not comfortable masks. They're they're you know, they create a seal, a suction uh, kind of a deal, and they, they do leave marks on your face, but they're there to help protect you if you're intimately exposed to this virus uh, so that you don't get sick. So our healthcare workers are wearing these when we're taking care of individuals who are COVID-19 positive, because yeah. that's the only way we can stay healthy and at work, uh, realistically. So, you know, the, so the ultimate protection is the N95, um, but the way to keep minimizing the spread is for people to stay distanced, number one, so that we're not sneezing or coughing on each other, uh, and, and and likely wearing the masks at this point. I think that the the World Health Organization, the CDC, is saying, look, if you're going to be in public right now, it's smart to put a mask on. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's going to hurt, right? It, I mean, it it's, not gonna, it's not going to. If you are asymptomatic, 
and you're walking around and you need groceries, but you've been staying at home and you're asymptomatic, you don't know you have it, um, and it's allergy season and you sneeze, you may think, oh, I'm just sneezing, it's allergies. But right. if you have a mask on and you're then you're protecting everybody else. And I think that's the point. We're trying to flatten the curve. So right. wearing a mask is really cool. Like get a good one, make a cool one. I ordered my daughter one with like an image on it. Like she's 13. I'm like, you're gonna wear this everywhere you go. Yay. Like, cause I want, you know, you have to get, you know, that, that thought in your head that you're actually, and my husband said it best. He said, we're just all going to pretend like we all have it. Our whole family is just going to move forward saying we all have it, even though we feel fine. Because if we act that way to our family, our friends and our people, it's going to keep us safe and it's going to keep them safe. And I think that's where my mindset changed, where I was like, okay, if I'm acting like I have it, then I'm going to protect my family. And I'm, I'm not going to be like, it's, I don't have it. I'm fine. And then go see my dad or go see. I mean, I haven't seen my dad. When was the last time we saw each other face to face? Months. Right. Months. So when he came back into Louisville, it's really hard not to see your family. Right. So I think that that's, you know, but if I if I look at it like, oh, I have it, then I, I feel like wearing a mask isn't a big deal. I feel like the other thing that the mask will do is, you know, part of this is if you touch a, a surface where someone else has touched and they had had a virus of any kind, COVID-19 included, uh, and then you wipe your face, you know, on some level, uh, that that is how this virus enters into our system. So, you know, even covering nose and mouth with the, the mask, you you don't wipe that as much. And we do this mm -hmm. sort of without thinking hundreds yeah. of times a day, you know, we're, we're constantly touching everywhere on our face, you know, doing whatever we do. Uh, so just even the subtle reminder of the mask helping you not contact your face, I think is a useful part of, of it. So, so we got another question. Um, Emily asked, why is COVID-19 seem to be more deadly for men than women? Is that something you're seeing? Uh, it is something that we're seeing. Uh, and I do not know the answer to that. I'll be honest. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone does yet. Um, the percents are not vastly different, but they're certainly present. Um, and it's in older age groups predominantly that we're seeing that be the case. Uh, and we're not sure why. Um, so Farley Nash asked, do we have any idea of what percentage of people are asymptomatic? And I think that's kind of the same thing with, we don't have enough tests. We don't, we can't. I think, you know, that's the deal, right? So part of the push to reopen is that there are areas that aren't experiencing large numbers of, of individuals. But the, my question is, are we testing enough to know that? Mm -hmm. Are we getting test answers back rapidly enough to know that, uh, or not? And, you know, that, that I think is, is the risk. We're, we're testing in areas highly populated and we're seeing those numbers, but we're still seeing those numbers rise. But what about in the rural communities where they may not go to the, you know, get their testing done? So I, I would caution people not be lulled into, you know, security by looking at some COVID tracking map that says, oh, you only have one person in your, you know, city or so many in your county and the, those numbers are low. I would, I would, I would be careful because I feel like we're not testing broadly enough still to know where this is uh, in a numbers game. I completely agree. I actually have a I have a friend uh, in California who has it. She tested positive. She's 22 days in. She still has no taste. Horrible. Yeah. She, and she's my age and she um, her boyfriend did not get it as bad. He got it first, but it was like seven to 10 days for him. She mm -hmm. was sick. She never had to go to the hospital, but she was very, very sick for 22 days. And she still does not have her sense of smell or, I mean, and taste. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, they, we don't know if that's going to come back. She doesn't know if that's going to come back. Um, and then there's a woman here, uh, in Louisville that's in a uh, mom's group with me on Facebook. I, I know contact with her, but she's in this group and she commented yesterday that she's had the dry cough for five days on Facebook. Um, but her doctor says she's not qualifying for a test. Um, in Kentucky, we're opening drive-through centers at all at four or five of the Kroger centers, Kroger. So if you're if you have symptoms or you're of uh, an older age, you can get tested. Uh, but this is she's been five days now with this dry cough and still isn't able to get a test. And I think, um, you know, if, if she does have it, then her whole home could have it. And, and there's no way to know. Right. Yeah. And I, I you know, I think that that's part of the deal. And, you know, Again, the, the, the virus, 80, 85% of the people who get it will have mild symptoms, right? So it is simple. It's, it's not. It's cough. It's fever. You know, 15% of the population is having more dramatic symptoms occur. You, you, you do see loss of smell, loss of taste. 
uh, you know, the pneumonias are probably the most complicating part of this. They're, they're generally people that need to go into the healthcare system to get some sort of you know, oxygen uh, delivery on some level. You know, there's a small percentage of that percentage that is going into the ICUs. And then, of course, there's a percentage of them that are that are not surviving the illness process. But, you know, 80 to 85 percent of the people are having a common cold with this. And so how often is that person just headed to the grocery store or to the gas station or, you know, to do something that they need to do and exposing the people that are around them? And that, I think, is the challenge. Right. So if we're not testing everyone, then we don't really know the broadness of this and we don't really know how to protect the rest of the people that they may be exposing unaware of what they have. So if somebody's sick, um, you know, and they have a cough, all right? So this is, you know, when I, what I did, like kind of what I did with Cookie, my toddler. If somebody's sick and they have a, a dry cough or they have a cough, is it okay to treat themselves with, with Magnewave PMF and to continue taking their vitamins? Should they call their doctor and try to get tested immediately? Like, when do you go from this is allergies and I'm going to change my life and go to like, when do you take that step? And is it okay if you if your doctor says just stay home to continue using uh, like nine way PMF and taking your vitamins? I mean, I, I think generically staying as physically healthy as you can is your smartest choice all the time. So resting well, you know, vitamins, good water intake, you, you know, anything that you can do to de-stress, whether that's, you know, whatever activity you like to do. Uh, there are plenty of online things that I, I know are, are, are available for lots of things that you know, CrossFit may be challenging because you don't have all those big tires in your house, but, uh, you know, there's some other How options. Your You're not going anywhere. You, you can oh, my back morning. We're moving all the furniture. So we're rearranging the whole house. There I got go. no right. CrossFit challenge going on yeah. here at home. There's some <laughs> options. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that is always the story. You should always be doing that to help protect yourself. You know, I, I think we're in the spring. The spring is a classic allergy producing time frame for a lot of individuals. You know, you kind of know your symptoms, but if you're run down or you're stressed and your body isn't, you know, being as active as it normally is, then those symptoms may feel different to you than what they have normally felt like in your allergic season pattern. Uh, and so I think those are, those are questions that, yes, I would, I would certainly say, call your doctor, ask them, you know, COVID classically comes with fever. So if you, you know, allergies don't normally, uh, so if you do start running fever, that would be uh, an important component to. Survive. What is that fever? Like I hear low grade fever, but if I call my 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 kids pediatrician, say ninety nine point seven, they're like, that's not a fever. They're fine. So what in an adult is a fever, and what in a, a child is a fever? So we look at we've looked at actually where does the chemistry change? Like when does your body begin to mobilize things in order to begin to fight infection? And what we have found is in the adult arena that is really like 101 and higher. Uh, and in kids, we drop that to 100.4 because their immune systems are not smart. Yeah, I'm writing that down. Yeah, so, you know, like for the less than, less than 18-month-old child, really 100.4 is where we're going to start to say, pay attention to that. You yeah. know, as we get older and our immune systems begin to get smarter, then we're, we're less worried with those sort of low-grade temperatures, as we say. Uh, but really, your chemistry doesn't change until somewhere between 100.4 and 101 is for most people what fever would be. Now, there are some people in the, in the, in the population, I mean, we're, we're talking averages, right? So there are people who don't, you know, maintain a normal body temperature at 98.6 is what we classically say is a normal body temperature. Some people run lower than that. Yeah. So fever yeah. for them actually comes at a different lower number. Yeah, we do that in our family. I'm like at 97 most of the time. I'm never at 98.4. So I feel like when I hit 99, I'm like, oh, something is wrong here. <laughs> something is wrong here. So, yeah. so really, I, I think it's the common, you know, if you know your normal temperature patterns and then you test, you know, you can take your temperatures as we're going through. If those temperatures are, you know, two degrees above where you normally are, then and you feel bad, then potentially yeah. for you, that is actually fever. You know what I mean? Uh, but if you if you walk into a medical community, you know, they're going to say 101 is an adult, 100.4 is a child. Those are our numbers that we, we sort of stick to. So. And so should you call, call your doctor or go somewhere or can you continue trying to take care of yourself at home? Like if I started feeling sick and I had a sore throat and a cough and a, and a 100.4, can I try to take care of myself? Like I, I feel like what I've talked to people about, a lot of their problems are they're like, oh, when he goes to sleep at night, he can't breathe. Or when he, mm -hmm. like, can I continue to treat, like, use the MagnaWave or use PEMF at home, continue using their PMF, continue 
when should they say, look, enough is enough, go to the hospital? Like, what would you think would be that, would it, the the toughness in the chest or what? Yeah, I mean, I, I think most of us can manage some snot and some cough and some fever at the house. Yeah. So you don't feel normal. You're going to sleep a little more, eat a little less, do a little less, feel achy. I mean, that that we can probably all manage. I think the, the trip point is breathing. So if you can't take, you know, five to 10 deep breaths in a row, if you feel like you just can't get the air moving, uh, or you can't expand the chest on some level, then I feel like that would be the appropriate time to go to the emergency department and be seen. You know, yes. prior to that, if you have a question, if you think, you know, we still have strep throat, we still have flu, we still have yes. common, you know, spring and winter viruses that are around creating common cold symptoms. And so those are things, you know, we typically get evaluated for and potentially treated depending on what they are. You know, so if you feel like some of, if you're worsening on a level, you're not improving, you know, certainly those are some things that you could call your doctor about and say, hey, look, do you think I have strep throat? Do you think I need a test? Do you think, you know, what do I need to do next? Do I need a chest x-ray to look at my lungs? You know, that type of a thing. But if you're truly not breathing well, then that that is absolutely time to get seen by somebody and, and to reevaluate, you know, do you need help at all right now? Yeah, I think that's the difference between being a hypochondriac mother and then being like an actual like sick person. And I think that that line is difficult for people to navigate. You know, yeah. um, all right, we're going to take uh, Cameron has this last question. I'm going to take this question. I'm going to go over a couple of new things that, that we have coming up um, in our next webinar. Uh, he asked, there's been some um, discussion about warmer weather. There have been debates about this. Is it already in areas where there's warmer clients? Is this just a hope or have there been some indications that the warmer weather will help? There, I mean, so again, new virus, we're guessing a little bit, but classically viruses die in heat. And so we see, you know, hundreds of thousands of common colds in a wintertime, but we don't see that many happening in the summertime. And arguably that is we are not in schools with kids in close contact. We're socially isolated on like a normal level, uh, realistically. So some of it may be contact, but a lot of it we think is just the warmth um, and the virus doesn't survive as well in the warmth. And so we're hoping that this virus will behave the same way. You know, again, arguably no one who has had this virus yet was in summer. China, of course, was in their winter. Europe was in their winter uh, in the early spring. We're, of course, sort of late winter and now spring. Uh, but no one is hot enough to really know yet. Uh, and so we have seen the virus existing in warmer climate uh, right now in our spring in the United States. The question is, you know, when will we get really hot enough consistently enough to potentially make the argument that it's going to die. Uh, and we just don't know yet. Yeah. My doctor um, uh, mentioned my, my child's doctor to open all the windows, not open, the, but open the shades. He was like putting the sunlight on stuff is beneficial. Like having the sunlight in your house, sunlight on your porch, sunlight on your things. He was like, I'm not saying it's, it's hot enough, but using sunlight on things seems to slow the grow of a virus. So anything exposed to the sun based in being in a dark room on some sheets that you sneezed all over having the sunlight. So I think, plus I think it's good for your mental health yeah. um, to just open the windows and try to let the sun in. Um, I, I do want to talk. Dad, do you have a question? I'm going back to Florida. Right. <laughs> I told you to stay there. It's beautiful. Um, if you don't know Pat Zemer, the CEO and founder of Magnawave, goes on the Magnawave Express. He travels all around the United States in an RV with my mother um, and meets with our practitioners, goes to shows, talks to people. So check it out. Hopefully, he'll be able to go back on the Magnawave Express next year and come out and see you all because it really is a great time for him and a, you know, a, a very fun way to meet everybody um, and for you to get to know us a little better. Uh, coming up, so yesterday we launched two new products to the Magnaway family, and I know you both know about them, so I'm just going to talk really quickly so that the public knows about them. We launched uh, the LZR Ultra Bright. It is a red light therapy that helps with uh, weight loss and it works very, very well. Oop, dad's got it on his face. Look at him. But I'm not going to look. It's like when you dress up for Halloween. He always goes way out for Halloween, scares the kids. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so the red light, it's fantastic. Uh, we're selling it for $1,340, comes with the travel case. I think it's like 500,000 milliwatts or something. Don't quote me on that. But what we have noticed, and before we ever brought this out to the public, is the weight loss factor. Uh, we tested on four of our employees, one of them being my dad. We had uh, inches lost were amazing. You can actually put the coil, if you look at this picture right here, you could put the coil over that while she's 
treating. So you get the red light, the heat, and the uh, magnoid PMF at the same time. Uh, we had tremendous results. I was didn't understand red light no idea i've really educated myself over the last years our practitioners and our employees have started to use it uh with the inches lost as a mother of three children i am excited to keep using this uh piece of equipment so <laughs> that is available that will be available uh for you i think it we just shared the link if you're not a practitioner we'll share the uh public link later today for you to be able to purchase that machine um if you are a practitioner you want to follow that link that's in the description because it has a uh, large discount for you secondly we launched uh attachment covers these are anti-microbial covers that go over all of our attachments this is excellent for uh, anybody who look at that, he's got the large loop, the butterfly, and then the one on the left is the uh, the one on the left is the butterfly. The one on the right is the zoom paddle. This protects your attachment from yellowing, dirt, um, any type of it, you know. They are antimicrobial. They're pretty cool, and they can come off and just be washed with soap and water. Um, and they slide on, slide off. So if you go out to a barn or you go treat your dog, you put the covers on, take them right off. They're like sheets on the bed. So get a couple pairs to keep your uh, attachments clean. It's one of the biggest complaints we get at MagnaWave is that, oh, it's yellowing. Well, this is going to stop that. So uh, they fit all of them. If you want more information about that, you can email us at support at mwpemf.com. Um, Dr. Myers, we you are working. You are traveling around the United States on the front lines of this. We cannot thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, and I'm excited about our next webinar. Go ahead, Dad. I have one, one more quick question for Dr. Myers, if I may. Uh, we had a question come up today about someone with diabetes mm -hmm. and their their uh, blood count. Mm -hmm. um, when they used the uh, MagnaWave, their blood count dropped. Blood pressure. Blood pressure. I'm sorry. Yeah, their blood pressure dropped, uh, which does which does happen. It is it is relaxing. It will lower blood pressure. It doesn't lower it tremendously to where all of a sudden you're uh, in, in that type of situation. But uh, the question was with diabetes and it lowers their blood pressure when they're doing a treatment. Is that a problem? Um, I don't know that it would be a problem provided they had enough, you know, volume. So, you know, again, we would say in any of your wellness sessions, uh, it's smart to hydrate well before, during, after, just because, you know, that again, we're trying to flush some of the things out of the system that don't need to be there. Uh, and we need to get the, the volume that we want in the blood vessels in order to support our cell structures. Because part of what the pulse electromagnetic field will do um, is it will create nitric oxide, which will then dilate and make larger all of our, our blood vessels, uh, which will allow flow to occur, which will carry oxygen then to a cell, which will then help the cell uh, function more cleanly and effectively, and then dump trash out of it. So the blood flow then is changing in its pattern and shape and structure a little bit. So, so we, we do find that your blood pressure will change slightly, but it's not normally enough to, you know, make you feel lightheaded or, or pass out from that perspective. We were both wrong, though. It's blood sugar. Yeah. Oh, and blood sugar. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was trying to say. They were talking about the blood sugar dropping. Blood sugar and, dropping, so not blood pressure dropping. Which, which um, is interesting, because if you have high blood blood sugar, that's when you get into problems. Right. Well, you either end of the scale is is a problem. So we, we like a range. We like in, a, in the middle ground is where we like to be. Um, I'm not, I, I'm trying to think if I've read a study that talks directly about sugar dropping, and I don't know that I have, but it would make intuitive sense because if I, because part of what MagnaWave does, it spins electrons and electrons are what our, our mitochondria use in order to create energy. And anytime we use energy effectively and efficiently, sugar is one of the primary sources uh, of, of gas kind of in the, in the car. So what we want to be able to do is as we're activating cell function, uh, is to then get gas to the cell so that it can continue to do its job correctly. So you will use sugar differently and maybe more efficiently in the body itself. Um, and so you would probably find the ability of the body to take the sugar out of the blood, which is where it can be, into a cell where then the cell will use the sugar. And so because that's happening, your blood sugar number will lower. 
and the other thing you're working better it's because yeah. you're working better you're working more efficiently and the other thing that we find is that i mean part of what we do in testing of sugars is we look at a hemoglobin a1c level and that that is literally looking at red blood cells uh, that have an attachment site for sugar. And so the amount of sugar stuck to your red blood cell tells me how much blood sugar, how high your blood sugar is consistently over a three month period of time. So, and, and those numbers are thrown around. And the reason is because a red blood cell lives roughly three months. That's about its life cycle. So every 120 days, that red blood cell is crushed up, recycled and rebuilt. And so we have a new red blood cell. So your hemoglobin A1C is a reflection over a three month period of time to how much sugar is in your blood because it will stick to red blood cells, right? And we look at diabetic numbers as being really 6.5 or higher on a hemoglobin A1C number as being either pre-diabetic or diabetic on that level. Uh, so we want less than 6.5 roughly to have sort of a normal volume of blood sugar in our system. So we know that free, free sugar in the blood can be toxic. Uh, and if your insulin isn't working right, or if the cell that is combining with the insulin isn't working right, then your sugar will raise in your blood. That's what diabetes is. Um, so we're going to either give you insulin uh, to your system to help different types of insulin to help change how much blood is in the sh how much sugar is in the blood versus how much sugar is in the cell where the cell can use it so if i make your system work more efficiently then intuitively it should use the sugar that's present more efficiently as well so you will likely find drops in sugar i just don't know how much so uh, somebody take some time. So let's say for this, if you have diabetes, should you maybe bring a candy bar or not like a like a, a nutritional snack? I don't know to with you to if if your blood sugar like is there a way to communicate this to someone like hey your body's gonna work better? I I have heard about this before um, with a person where they they actually once they started using the magnet they were able to cut down the type, the amount of insulin that they were taking. Because they noticed they weren't feeling well, they went to the doctor, the doctor's like, whoa, you're on way too much insulin now. Um, so is it a way for them to be able, and they, you know, this was kind of like, oh, it could be the machine, but that's the only thing I've changed. Um, is there a way for us to talk to somebody about that? Or how would you recommend explaining that to somebody with this type of diabetes? I mean, I, I would say, you know, blood sugar test before the treatment, blood sugar test after the treatment, know your numbers, know them well, yeah. then yes, if you, if you feel like your number is getting too low, you know, then I would say arguably, you know, most diabetics have a protocol. So if your sugar is too high, then you start treating it with insulin in graded scales. If it is too low, then you start adding in a sugar source. So they've got both the highs and the lows that they should have a plan uh, from their endocrinologist or physician that has been established for them because everyone is, is unique. That, there's no real template for diabetes because all of our systems, our physiology is a little bit different uh, in, in each person. So, I mean, I would say that if you're finding your sugars are changing, track them. You know, we, we would say track them every two to three hours roughly to know, are you continuing to drop? Uh, are you doing that if you're magnawaving every day, every other day? Are they continuing to go lower and lower? And then how do you modify how much insulin you're providing uh, into the system? Because, you know, again, as, as we get healthier, you know, part of the diabetic problem is nerve injury. Part of the diabetic problem is small blood vessel uh, occlusions or constrictions where we're not getting blood flow into areas. Uh, and, and part of a diabetic problem is the number of, of the sugar molecules that are not where it's supposed to be, that are in the bloodstream, not inside of the cells. So we're looking at several different factors of health, predict, you know, predictably. And we've done good studies with PEMF on healing sores, the sort of microcirculation yeah. problem in the diabetic population, right? We've looked at neuropathies, the nerves not being able to feel correctly, that fire and give you these burning sensations and, and being able to modify that and repair that type of nerve damage. So it's, it's not shocking to me to think that our, we're changing sugar numbers either. Um, I just don't, I have not read a study that tells me like ranges of what 
what they're seeing with blood sugar modification. Right. So, so people just need to know they need to test themselves, talk to their doctor, correct. Talk yes. to the doctor about what they're doing, test themselves before and after, and then know their protocol. If their blood sugar, sugar drops, I think that's, I've seen it before with uh, lymph nodes, with people who've had overactive mm -hmm. all of a sudden they don't even, they can slowly at working with their doctor and, you know, changing their lifestyle and being able to use the MagnaWave where they've come back and said, I, my, I didn't, I've completely cut my medication in half now with my doctor. I'm right. working with him because I'm, I'm getting my body healthier. So, right. so basically it's the same mentality of just being able to explain that to somebody that you're going to use a, do a wellness session on. Correct. The other, the other thing that that, and I don't want to kick this too long, but the other thing that person needs to do, the practitioner as well, if you're noticing that you you are seeing your blood levels, your sugar levels drop or whatever it is, look at the session time. If your session time is 30 minutes, drop your session time back to 15 minutes. You're still going to get the wellness in the blood. You're still going to get the oxygen oxygenation and you're still going to help your pain relief, but you don't have to go 30 minutes yeah. so, or whatever it is. So the practitioner needs to look at that as well. And so does the client. Yeah, I think that's a big um, misconception a lot of times with higher power PMF machines where people will say, uh, I mean, there's actual companies out there that say, oh, you need an hour and a half. And I'm like, there, do you know what? Okay. Everybody's body is different. So like, it doesn't even make sense to tell somebody exactly how much time they need because my body functions totally different than my father's and Dr. Myers. So what they are going to do for themselves to be comfortable um, is different. So the, the biggest thing, the magnet that we talk about in our training is, Hey, you need to understand what this machine does and how it helps your body. And you need to be able to communicate that correctly so that you can, you know, help that person find the best session for them and they can communicate it with their doctor. Okay. I think that that's the best way to go about it instead of saying one size fits all, because this is just not a product that does that. You know, I may like a 30 minute massage. Somebody else may want two hours of hot rock massage. I don't judge your massaging. All I'm saying is we all do it differently, right? So it's whatever's comfortable. So uh, dad, thank you so much. It's really nice to see your face. Your beard still looks excellent. Um, Dr. Myers, thank you for joining me today. We will have it. We're going to shoot for another one soon. Uh, probably the week after next, we're going to do another, uh, webinar with Dr. Myers based on her schedule. Again, she's on the front line working, traveling all across the country. So we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Um, and we'll see you next time. Okay. Sounds great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Thanks folks. See you later.